What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Hui Gomez. I hope I'm getting that right, uh, Hui. We didn't actually talk about it in the show, but I think Portuguese names with an R are usually pronounced with an H. Anyways, if I get that wrong, I apologize. Um, but Hui is the lead software developer at OpenNode. So OpenNode is a Bitcoin payment, payment processor um, with Lightning integration and also uh, the option of converting to a variety of, uh, of fiat currencies. So this is a space that's been developing rapidly, both the payment processor space, moving away from some of the uh, less popular payment processors towards newer ones, and also, of course, the Lightning Network. And on that point, uh, Hui is also the creator of uh, Laps.co, which is a listing of uh, a variety of new Lightning apps and then curated by the community, so upvoted or downvoted based on, uh, yeah, based on the community. So anyways, I just thought it would be, uh, this is an area of interest of mine, both the Lightning Lightning Network. Certainly, I'm trying to get up to speed and learn more about it, and uh, and also the payment processor space in, in allowing more people and more businesses and merchants and service and product providers to, to transact and enter this economy. Um, so yeah, I think for those reasons, or I thought for those reasons, rather, that uh, it would be great to to speak with somebody involved. And uh, Hui was kind enough to give me his time. So this is the further discussion portion where we take about an hour and just have an open general conversation. The rapid fire episode is available is available now as is available now as well. And that's where I ask him the standard set of rapid fire questions and then some word association questions at the end. That's it. Enjoy. Well, listen, man, thanks for taking the time to uh, jump on a call with me. I really appreciate it. I know you're probably super busy, uh, so we'll get right down to it. But um, I guess the best place to start is probably just for people that may not be familiar with OpenNode, just to kind of explain what it is and, and, uh, you know, the kind of the the position it has in the ecosystem. Yeah, so OpenNode is the company that I work for. It's a Bitcoin payment processor, so we are a company that helps other companies accept Bitcoin. Um, and our goal was to bring the Lightning Network to every business that we can. And since the since we launched, uh, we quickly focused on just bringing Bitcoin payments um, to every business that we can. And we try to be very supportive of uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem. So we support every latest technology, back 32 SegWit, uh, the Lightning Network, obviously. Um, and yeah, that's that's our main goal. Um, we are a custodial platform, and we are also fully compliant. So there's some caveats there, uh, as, because we have to comply with the uh, U.S. regulation. We are a U.S.-based company, so there's a lot of uh, rules uh, in place that we have to follow. So we have to have our merchants go through a KYC process. Um, there's no KYC in our checkout, so that's just. Uh, that's just something that uh, businesses using OpenNode have to go through. Um, but after you go through that, it's a very straightforward process to get OpenNode integrated. We have plugins for Shopify, WooCommerce, PrestaShop, and a bunch of other things. And we also have an API that allows any developer to quickly uh, start accepting Bitcoin payments. And a lot of uh, Lightning apps are using our our API because it's so easy. It's an easy way to um start accepting lightning payments and also doing uh lightning payouts without having to maintain your own node and without having to maintain any you know liquidity locked in lightning channels or having to worry about any of that so that's you know a brief overview of what we do (laughs) 
Right. Okay. That was that was a bit of a lot. So we'll. I'll, I guess I'll jump in right away because I know that this comes up on a lot of the panel discussions you've been on and podcasts and stuff. But just the distinction between Open Node and BTC Pay Server, right? And I, I've heard you say that, you know, B, Open Node is attempting to, you know, be a partner with the kind of larger blue chip mainstream household name sort of. Um, you know, uh, service providers, merchants, that sort of thing. And as a result, if, if those sort of merchants require a KYC solution to in order to partner up. And so the distinction is that you're kind of going after those sort of clientele where something like BTC Pay Server is just, you know, someone who wants to basically be their own merchant entirely. Is that right. the proper distinction? Yeah, so one of our big big focuses is bringing on uh, large businesses onto the Bitcoin economy. And it's not that they ha want to go through KYC. It's just that sure. it's better for them to have a partner that is compliant and that has a legal department that they can reach out to. And, you know, we because we are a VC-funded company, we can't afford to do all of that. Whereas BTC Pay Server, it's a community project. It has a lot of uh, developers working on it, but they do it on... Um, you know, on an open source basis. So it's the, the two projects are uh, very different uh, in that regard. But yeah, I think um, we are a, a better a solution that's better uh, suited for larger businesses, just because they don't have to really understand what the what Bitcoin is and how it works and the infrastructure that has to be in place in order for you to accept Bitcoin payments. But uh, BTC Pay Servers uh, is a little bit more hands-on, but it's also a good solution if you want to set up and be your own payment processor and not have to worry about um, having someone process your payments and the privacy implications that that, had, that, that has. So there, there are two different solutions. Uh, I guess they could be used for the same purpose, which is accepting Bitcoin payments, right? Mm -hmm. But I think uh, practically they end up being very, very different Right. And can you maybe outline for people, because you're not the first, you know, Bitcoin uh, payment processor. The one that's out there that most people know is BitPay and kind of people love to hate BitPay um, for a number of different reasons. But maybe you can just uh, detail the distinction between OpenNode and BitPay and just how you how what you're doing is different. Right. So uh, for starters, we are a Bitcoin only company. Uh, and I think BitPay and I think every other payment processor in the crypto quote unquote uh, space uh, is multi-coin. So they accept a variety of coins. Uh, we are a Bitcoin only solution. So if you go to our checkout, there's no coin selection. There's only one QR code, uh, one Bitcoin address. And that's our first uh, differentiation from every other player in the space. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is that uh, from the from day one, we launched with Lightning Network support, with uh, SegWit support. So we try to be uh, good actors in the space. Um, we try to open source as much work as we can to to the space. And uh, I think uh, BitPay's uh, fall began when when they started, you know, adopting uh, and going for the Bcash th uh, way of doing things, and they never, you know, came back to you know, the, the, the good side. So I think uh, that's also a differentiation point, which is that, you know, we try to be actual actual good participants in the network, even though we have to be compliant. 
but we try to do everything that we can to support the network. So we do a lot of internal work to support uh, batching. So we try to batch as many transactions as we can, not to you know pollute the blockchain with uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of transactions. So we try to batch them all up. So yeah, that, that's the main differences um, in terms of you know more business. Uh, related things. We also have different pricing, but that's more of uh, in the business side of things. Yeah. So, what what's the the impact of KYC other than you know you know the the time people have to take to to do something like that and the the how it allows you to be regulatory compliant? But I noticed on on your website that. You know, your ethos is like, you know, everybody should be able to accept, uh, you know, Bitcoin and lightning payments. And we don't discriminate against, you know, anybody, no matter what they want to do. We're, we're here for everybody. But in a politically charged environment, it's not difficult to conceive of a, a case in the future where maybe someone selling drugs or arms or something like that is using OpenNode. How does the fact that you're you know, regulated impact how you might be leaned on in the future to deny service to, you know, customers? Yeah, absolutely. With, with the uh, regulation that's in place in the U.S. today, there is uh, certainly some businesses that we wouldn't be able to serve. But there's some, this, there's a very nuanced distinction between, um, so businesses can get uh, excluded from traditional payment processors and while being fully legal and that's a distinction that's very nuanced and it's hard to explain but so there's what is in the law and that is what you have to comply with but there's also a pressure that you get from credit card companies and pressure that you get from banking partners and that's usually what ends up uh, have uh, forcing companies to have to exclude uh, businesses from even though they're fully legal so since we are a bitcoin company we have some more, some more leeway when it comes to you know not having to worry about what uh, is good for Visa and what is good for Mastercard and what they ask us to do because we don't have those kinds of relationships in place that we have to maintain, uh, but there since we are you know compliant, there's certainly some businesses, uh, especially from sanctioned countries, uh, things like that that we wouldn't be able to to serve. But right. other than that, we try to be you know as open as we can uh, within the confines of the law and. Uh, yeah, and we don't have to worry about maintaining all those relationships with uh, that that many intermediaries. Whereas PayPal, for example, they have to worry about all of that. And if uh, a credit card company asks them to shut some business off, they have to in order to protect the you know the rest of their business. Right. So basically, just you know anybody is welcome as long as what they're doing is not illegal, right? Under, right. under the law of the jurisdiction. Exactly. The, the U.S. jurisdiction in this the, case. Yeah. The other thing is that you, you guys have a, an automatic exchange to fiat uh, service, right, as part of the platform. So yeah. to what degree would those banking partners be able to, you know, pressure any sort of, you know, behavior action from you guys? Right. We haven't felt that just yet, but I'm sure, you know, it will happen uh, as we grow. So that's something we, we will have to deal with. But what we find is that um, banking partners in general, if they don't have, you know, the credit card part of things, it's a much, much simpler system uh, with many fewer uh, intermediaries. So I think that will help. But I think only time will tell uh, if that happens or when that happens. Right. And are, is your guys approach? 
I mean, do you see this as a long-term service that's integrated into the platform, like the the automatic, uh, the option to automatically exchange to fiat, or is it just like, well, might as well offer it while we can, but maybe in the future we'll be, you know, we won't be able to offer that for whatever reason. Right. In the ideal world, I guess that. Uh when when that when the pressure starts to come from the banking partners uh the world is already fully hyper bitcoinized so we don't right. have to worry about that but yeah the plan is to uh keep this service in place uh for as long as we can since it's something that a lot of businesses especially large larger businesses have to worry about because their bills are in fiat they pay their employees in fiat so it's something that they have to have in place uh but in the future, we already see some demand for people wanting to keep a small percentage of their revenue in Bitcoin. So that's great. Uh, but in the future, we expect that to that percentage to keep growing and eventually to hit 100 percent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you guys have been operating for about a year. Is that right? Yeah, since May last year. So about a year and a half. Yeah. And so, you know, how's it going? How much? uptake has there been what's been the response from you know merchant partners you know how just give me the rundown on how it's gone so far yeah we're, we've been growing fairly quickly so uh, i'm not sure on, on the exact numbers but we're growing at a very significant pace even though we're a startup and that's expected we, we're growing i think even above the startup average which is already high to begin with so we're seeing a lot of adoption. Obviously, we're still a, a small company, so you have to put those numbers into perspective. But we're seeing more and more companies starting to take us seriously and start really considering having Bitcoin payments. Uh, for some, that's not something, for some companies, that's not something they plan to have in the near or even medium term. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, some other companies are much more receptive uh, to hear and discuss that because they see it as, just another way of uh, just another target audience that they can sell to, right? So if they can sell to uh, a bigger audience and sell to more people and not have to worry about uh, uh, accounting implications, tax implications, and even uh, Bitcoin liquidity implications, because if we sell the Bitcoin for them, they don't have to worry about that, then it's just a win-win for everyone, really. So, right. yeah. And like, why did you end up getting involved in this project in particular? You know, I, I've heard your story a little bit um, in previous podcasts and you're, you know, you're saying that you had, I think, come across Bitcoin several years prior and then really kind of started investigating it in 2016, a background in, uh, in computers, software engineering, yeah, software computer engineering, science. computer science. Right. And uh, so, you know, what, what about this project? you know, kind of drew you in and you made you decide you wanted to work in it? Well, it, there was never any decision, really. It was really by chance. Um, Joan, the CTO of OpenNode, just invited me to help uh, with the MVP. So the product ended up being launched in May last year. Um, and I just started helping as I did help many other projects outside of crypto space. You know, I was a contractor, so that's that was kind of what I did. But I just went down the rabbit hole very quickly and uh you know in the team of bitcoiners and bitcoin maximalists that are there to incentivize you and uh, dive you make you dive even deeper into the rabbit hole i very quickly became obsessed with bitcoin and became obsessed with bringing bitcoin payments to everyone so i never thought about you know ever leaving 
uh, and go do something else. You know, I was kind of, uh, yeah, this is the thing that I want to do for as long as I can. Yeah, I, I, there's a I, there's a lot of that sort of sentiment floating around these days. A few weeks ago, I I wrote on Twitter that if you're not obsessed with Bitcoin, then you don't understand what Bitcoin is. And it seemed to uh, resonate with a lot of people. You know, it's just the rabbit hole just never ends. And the more it draws you in, or the more you learn about it, the more it draws you in. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating time and a fascinating space. But you've done some stuff with Lightning just personally too, right? Did, are you Lightning Spin? Did you develop that? Yeah, so uh, yeah, while I was working for OpenNode, I, I kind of wanted to so I was helping more with the front end side of things, with which do interact with Bitcoin, but very minimally, right? You don't have to. So the back end is responsible for all the uh, interaction with the actual Bitcoin full node and the Lightning node. So I kind of wanted to get my feet wet and right. out, uh, some Lightning stuff without having to worry about maintaining a payment processor in production, right? Because screwing up is very expensive sure. in that setting. So I decided to do you know, try something out and try do a little project. Then I specifically wanted to do something that allowed people to send money via Lightning, but also receive money uh, via Lightning, so people can experience both 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 sides of the equation, right? Because uh, even though sending microtransactions is not a thing uh, in the traditional payment processor with credit cards and stuff, um, that's very fun, but receiving money if you think about it it's very much it's much much harder in the traditional uh setting because as an individual you can't accept credit cards right you can send money out but it's very hard for you to accept money and so i specifically wanted to do something that tackled both both of those things uh yeah. so i thought about yeah let, let's try to do uh like a very simplified roulette and try to make it fun um and yeah i just uh made lightning spin which is uh which is exactly that so it's a very simplified roulette you can pay uh per spin so uh, the minimum wager at the time was a uh, thousand satoshis and you if you win you can instantly withdraw withdraw your earnings so that was my first yeah project in the lightning space uh, is that legal i mean because technically it's gambling right Right. So that's that was one of the reasons that I quickly uh, sold it because I didn't <laughs> want to, yeah, to have that uh, um, responsibility. But I think there's uh, the company that is running it now has found ways to operate it uh, within the uh, confines of the law uh, of the country they're operating in. So uh, right. there's definitely ways to make a, a casino like that or a game like that uh, legal. But I just didn't have enough time to or resources to invest into figuring out all of that. It was really just a, a side project. And once it started, I, I was never expecting it to take off like it did, right? I was expecting people to try it out, um, make a couple spins, and then just uh, never go back to it again. But it ended up doing hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, spins uh, over the course of a few months. So it quickly became apparent for me that I needed to, you know, sell it to someone that actually could run it. Uh, yeah. Do, 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 I don't know if you know, I mean, do things like that require a company? Because like, let's just say you, you, you know, you host it in a certain jurisdiction, a laissez-faire or, you know, a kind of untraceable way, or at least in a jurisdiction that is not going to snoop around. And then you have the proceeds, you know, go to, an anonymous address somewhere. I mean, like, does, does, 
does something like that even need a, like a company structure around it, or or can you just operate it as like a interface and that's it? Money goes in one side, comes out the other, and vice versa. I guess you would need a company just to make sure it's actually legal. But if you wanted to hide it from the legal, you know, setting, then yeah, I guess there there could be ways to to make it. Uh, uh, not not legal but to to operate it in that way but i think to to make it be fully legal and actually something that you can take the earnings and actually use them in the real world without having to hide them then you would have to be a company but yeah, i'm i'm not too sure it certainly you know sheds some light on future you know exam because with payment uh, processors in the past like if you were doing if you had a gambling website like that and you didn't have a you know company around it let's say if you just money came in and then you know the payment processors handled that as soon as the authorities found out then they would just lean on the payment processors and it would be over but you know we're we're rapidly going into a a future and a time where like there's going to be all these let's say potentially revenue generating services that don't necessarily have to be tethered to a legal structure nor a payment processor that can be uh, that can be stopped. Now, that I'm not saying that's the case with OpenNode, but even if it's just a, a personal channel, for example, or, or you know, some sort of mix of those things, like it's, it seems like there's going to be a lot of. It's going to be very difficult to stop such structured, you know, businesses in the future or services or whatever. Yeah, I think it might be hard to stop them or track them, but uh, it's definitely still within the realm of possibility that uh, police authorities or national uh, the government can still go after you and figure out who you are and what you're doing. So I would still tread carefully, uh, <laughs> even though it might look like Bitcoin is very anonymous. A lot of people got screwed up because they thought that was the case. But it turns out that it's not as anonymous as it thinks. And it's and because you think it's anonymous, it makes you more prone to be less careful because, oh, this is anonymous. I can do whatever I want. Uh, but it turns out that's not the case. And uh, even with Lightning, which gives you a lot more privacy, we still don't know what is possible if you have, you know, a lot of nodes in the network and you do a lot of advanced uh, analytics in the network. We still don't know what is possible. But uh, we hope, uh, our hope and my hope is that uh, we get a lot more privacy with Lightning. But we, we still, I think we have to let that play out. Uh, so I wouldn't, you know... Uh, do crazy things <laughs> yeah, with yeah. Uh, Bitcoin for now. <laughs> I, w I was on Lightning Spin before we hopped on the call, and the the default uh, like bet amount is ten thousand satoshis, right? And I was just like, I guess I wasn't paying attention. I and I only saw like there's a minimum and a maximum, and I guess I thought the default was the minimum, and then you could increase it to the maximum. So I went for a spin and uh, I lost and so it was like I, I lost 10,000 Satoshis and then I realized that you could you could the minimum bet was actually a thousand right and in, in my mind I was like no you know like and I, I'm only using yes. this example to say how uh, you know that's less than a, a dollar right the 10,000 Satoshis and so you know I, I spent a dollar a couple bucks on you know espresso today for example but when it's in the form of bitcoin or satoshis i find such a more visceral desire to not to say, part from yeah. them you know yeah, it's exactly. such a weird thing i, I could really teaches you how to 
save and be very mindful of the things you spend money on and especially when the money is in bitcoin already uh it's very hard to part ways with it but even regular fiat money when you spend uh, you know large quantities of it or at least modest quantities of it you could you at least i generally think well i could have spent all of this uh buying bitcoin instead yeah, so yeah yeah it, it really puts you in a weird state of mind where you, where you're always thinking about saving and bitcoin and how much uh you should have or how much you can stack so <laughs> it's fun well, well you know the 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 opportunity cost of your spending is now like super apparent and in your face once you get into bitcoin you're like do i need that new shirt do i need those new sneakers it's a hundred bucks you know i could put that hundred bucks into bitcoin that hundred bucks could be a thousand yeah. bucks in, in a few years or or more you know um yeah, so I, I think this is a very common theme that a lot of people that are in Bitcoin talk about, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, is just how it, it changes your behavior. You know, you, you obviously lower time preference and you scrutinize your purchases more. You try not to uh, spend on things that are unnecessary, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, I'm, it's a generalization, but it seems to be pretty common. Yeah, I think so, because I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. So you... If you're spending your time and energy doing a job uh, and getting a salary, I think you should be, it makes sense that you should be inclined to save that and not spend that on random things or, or things that, you know, will quickly vanish into not giving you pleasure or happiness anymore. So I yeah. think this should be the default state. I don't know. I think the Keynesian way of doing uh, economy just... Uh, pressured everyone because well your money in five to ten years will be worthless anyway so might as well take some uh happiness out of having that money <laughs> so i think it's just uh over the past you know 20 30 maybe 40 years uh everyone's just uh be this became the default mindset for everyone so it's surprising for us that well now i think about saving but i should i think it should be the default uh and hopefully uh once we hyper bitcoinize the world uh it will you know, for future generations, they will look back at us. Oh, well, these these guys spent thirteen bucks on avocado toast. So how insane <laughs> is that? At the time, that bought you know, one hundred thirty thousand sats. You know, yeah. that is like the life savings of some people in the future. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. But it's definitely you know, I think it's a good mind uh, mind state to be in. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that yeah, I'm spending my finite time, as Murad puts it. I'm spending this my time which is the only finite thing that i'm sure i will only have this much of uh, during my lifetime and i'm spending it for things that are going away or i'm keeping it in money that is slowly but surely depreciating so i i think bitcoin gives you a way out and allows you to be in the correct state of thinking about uh saving definitely and you know like safety in his book mentioned how the type of money that the, the culture uses uh, influences behavior but the funny thing is is like m most people that I know of like no coiners or pre coiners we'll call them right they they aren't really aware of how the monetary system works they're not aware that over the last 20 years their purchasing power has gone to, you know the money's been inflated by 20 percent 30 percent 50 percent more so it's it's interest like I'm, I'm curious about how the uh, how the the type of money that a society uses subconsciously changes behavior right because people that i know that only use fiat they're not like going around like oh i can't wait to get rid of my shitty fiat like they still want money and want to save for the future it just seems that once you become aware of uh 
well, the quality of a fiat money versus the quality of a money like Bitcoin, then you become hyper aware of the, the, the upside of saving and the downsides of spending or overspending. Right. So I think over time, even historically, there, there was always ways to save that would give you money over time. It wasn't uh, opportunities like Bitcoin that are so disproportional in, in terms of upside. But if you invested your money in the S&P and if you invested your money in real estate, there, there were always ways of uh, making your money work for you and really getting some savings going and having your savings work for you and generate more and more money. So I think historically that always happened. Uh, what I think Bitcoin gives you is the certainty that what you're investing in is actually, you know, a finite resource than very, a very scarce resource. Whereas uh, every other thing you can invest in, it, it's really a gamble, right? Even if you invest in prime real estate, who knows if in 20 or 30 years that city will still be, you know, the center of the world it can very much you know people get driven away because the price has just risen too much so i think bitcoin is the only thing that you can invest and have a hundred percent certainty that there will only be 21 million bitcoins so the bitcoin that i have now is a certain percentage of the total supply so i think that helps you know the mindset of saving uh but i think historically there there was always ways of thinking about saving that made sense it, it, they just weren't as disproportionate as they are now. Maybe, you know, 50 years ago, investing in prime real estate in New York had this much upside. I don't know. But for us millennials and for people in this generation, there, there aren't so, so, such opportunities now. So you can invest in the S&P, but does that make sense to buy the top of the market right now? You know, right. that keeps going up and up, but it's actually it's never been this high. So maybe it doesn't make much sense and maybe you should think about other things and what other things can you think about because real estate is already you know at the top of it that market so the only opportunity that really makes sense at least in my perspective is to think about something that is going to be a wealth transfer from uh you know the boomers and the generations before uh ours and to move money because those people eventually will you know get retired and eventually die so the money has to flow somewhere right and if we can start a movement and a generation of people that already think digitally and think, you know, they're Internet native people, uh, if they have a currency that works online and that works uh, within this very defined uh, mathematical limits, um, I think it just makes sense for the savings paradigm to shift very abruptly over the next 10 years. Yeah, I think. But yeah, I think that's that's the way people should think about savings. I think that's very well put. And like everything, I think in hindsight that, you know, what you just described will be like so plain to see, so obvious that people will be like, I can't, I can't believe I didn't see it. Like, yeah, what am I going to do? Buy the top of the market, buy super expensive real estate. You know, J J um, Jimmy Song uh, made, a, I think, kind of back a calculation where he tracked the annualized growth of the S&P since... I don't know if it's since 1971 or even earlier back, and it was like six and something percent. And then he looked at the money supply growth of, of the U.S. dollar annualized over the same period, and it was like six and a, and a something percent. You know, so right. as you as you said, you know, being involved in and having owning a monetary asset that is in, 
ultimately will be infinitely scarce and who and whose monetary policy and all that kind of stuff is is set and unchangeable again in in hindsight i mean this is why we're, why we're all here right we could be totally wrong but right. uh, in hindsight yeah. i think if, that if, is the possibility <laughs> yeah, that we are yeah. completely wrong but i think sure. it makes sense though yeah and and i i always i try to add in that caveat because of course it's possible um but if we're not wrong then the, when this is studied in hindsight in, in 20, 30, 40 years, it's, you know, it's going to seem like how come not, ev- how, come, how could anybody not have seen it? Yeah, and I think also the traditional monetary policy and monetary system that we live in currently, it makes it so everyone needs to be an investor, right? So there are savings opportunities, but you have actually have to go out and seek out and learn about what is the S&P and what are stocks and what are ETFs and what real estate should I buy? Should I buy New York? Should I buy, you know, right. some place in Canada, LA, SF? You really have to turn yourself into an investor. And as we, you know, evolved for the past maybe thousands of years to become very, very specialized and every person becomes specialized and they do one thing and they do it well. And the human race became very, you know, prosperous doing exactly that. It's it's very backwards that now you're expecting every person that specialized in being good in this one thing also have to learn about investing and about, you know, the places that they have to put their hard-earned money in. So Bitcoin really, get, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, especially now, I mean, we got negative interest rates all over the world. Right. So as b- before, you might have just said, bah, whatever, put my money in the bank. I get 2% interest adjusted for inflation. May- inflation, maybe I break even, you know, whatever. I don't need to be an investor. Right. But now it's like you're, if you don't know how to manage your money, you're going to be losing it on an annual basis. And it, it evaporates quickly, you know, as the years pile up. Yeah, absolutely. So that, yeah, right now, yeah, you're you're for sure right because right now, you don't really have any other option. You're either losing money or you're losing money, or you have to <laughs> go ahead and figure out some crazy way to buy the top of the market and not get wrecked, which I find that very hard to to believe. So, so yeah, I think Bitcoin just gives you a way of doing or investing and doing savings without having to learn any you know things that you're not supposed to learn you should leave investing for the people that actually do that for a living so edge funds uh, family funds uh, and investors of that sort they actually are good at that and they're good at you know analyzing the up and down side of the companies and they they've invested their their whole lives in learning that right so yeah. you shouldn't be expecting to go out in the markets and compete against those people because you're surely going to lose. For so sure. Bitcoin, I think, levels the playing field and gives everyone the opportunity to save without having to be experts at anything, but working their regular jobs and putting that money aside and just not spending it. And I think that's a reasonable request, whereas totally. being an investment professional is not really a reasonable thing, thing to, to expect of people especially in the current climate where you know being an investment professional in in, the, in this kind of system that's become so perverted like i've had some people on the show where you know they they in their previous career uh like their sole purpose they had people in their company whose sole purpose was to interpret what it meant when janet yellen wore a blue blazer instead of a red blazer because that was going to inform investment decisions that the firm made and you're like 
this is the fucking twilight zone. Like, what, what, what the fuck is wrong with people thinking in this way? But the system is, is, is predicated on, well, it's predicated on what it is, and that creates so many perversions at every level, which makes it even more daunting for your average person to say, like, well, what the hell do I do with my money when that dude over there is looking at the colors of the jacket <laughs> to determine investment uh, decisions, yeah. you know? So I agree that Bitcoin is this thing that's come along, and not only does it have fundamentals that are, easy to understand once you have a basic understanding of you know what money is and and the his, historical context of monetary policy but it just like makes sense it's like oh a type of money that nobody can fuck with that like that they can't be that can't be censored that can't be um confiscated that can't be inflated away by one central authority yeah that makes sense to me oh and it's good for you know transacting on the internet and there's microtransactions and all like it's going to be internet native yeah sure that that seems like a good fit yeah, yeah we spent the last you know a uh, few minutes just discussing one very specific aspect of bitcoin it obviously has a lot uh more things going for it so yeah i guess that goes to show that that is just you know this the savings aspect of bitcoin is just the thing that you know we're talking about now but it certainly has a lot of other utilities and yeah. i think being internet native and being a global currency will just make so much sense for people that were born and raised doing, you know, internet payments and just transacting online more than they transact in person even. I think it, it will quickly become apparent and as the world becomes more and more actually global, you know, you're transacting, transacting with people all over the world, it will just make more and more sense even though, you know, even if you disregard the savings aspect of it, just the fact that you can have one uh, asset that you can trade globally and that acts as money you know that you can use that asset to trade uh with other people for goods and services that alone is already so valuable that i think bitcoin has so many things going for it that it has to win eventually and it will probably take a long time and we probably need the market to achieve a much much higher uh, level of liquidity so we don't experience things that what what happened yesterday that the price dropped 15 percent or so in less than 24 hours and i think that is unreasonable to ask people to uh, have savings in an asset so volatile as that uh but i think eventually with 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 time and with the havings coming in and just uh, being less and less severe uh and less and less impactful in the price uh and you know, there's more liquidity and services like BACT that allow for institutional investment. I think that will, you know, bring the liquidity up to a level that things like that won't happen anymore. And we can start expecting people to migrate their savings uh, and even personal money over to Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. But I, I also think it may be the case that, you know, give Bitcoin a few more years. And if things keep progressing as they have kind of stagnate, boom, bust, stagnate, boom, bust, that, that sort of cycle. I mean, unless you, I think a lot of people will say, well, do I care if it dropped 20% in a day? I mean, these, these are two, three, five-year you know, savings deposits effectively that I'm making, and the five-year chart looks pretty damn sweet. So, you know, you do whatever the hell you want on a daily basis. Right, but I think it will always be very hard to stomach a 20% drop, especially if you're counting on that money for something that you, you know, have to do. And 
all of a sudden, you know, if you have, you know, a, a, if it's some, a daily money, spending thing, sure, sure. Right. Or even if it's like your emergency fund, do you want to keep that in fiat? I think once we reach a certain level that you, the, volata- the volatility is so low that you can have your, you know, your emergency fund in Bitcoin and just making sure that the funds you have aside for emergencies are not being inflated away and you have to keep on adding more money into your emergency fund. I would lo- like to to live in a world like that, that you can keep, you know, your funds that might be, might have, to, that you might have to use in the near term, if you can keep those in Bitcoin, that's the world that I envision in the next 10 to 20 years. But yeah, for now, it's really just for long-term savings and you have to be able to not touch that, that Bitcoin for five to 10 years to make sure that, you know, if drops happen, you give you you have enough time that the, the market can build itself back up. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be really in- interesting to see how like the Bitcoin generation reacts. You know, so people that kind of, you know, the generation now of ten year olds, and in the next few years, like you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen year olds who come into a the world in an economic sense. You know, transacting online most likely, like you said who look out at the landscape and they're like, hmm, my options are this Bitcoin thing and the infrastructure built on top of it or PayPal or my bank. Like, because we kind of accept it because we come from that world. That's always the interesting thing about change, right? Like, even though we think it's horrible and shit, an element within us accepts it because it's what we've always done. Like, you know, oh man, I've, I've made international transfers recently and stuff like that and they you know they take days obviously they cost you know 40 bucks for the fee and then they take a forex uh, spread and by the end of it like let's say it's 10,000 euros you, you've lost three four hundred five hundred euros and that's with like a good service like transfer wise or something like that you know and and f- through no fault of their own but like maybe your bank charges an incoming fee and all this right. nonsense and I just feel like you know, a generation who starts out with those two options, of course, they're never going to choose the the legacy option. They're going to, you know, and I think that will really, I mean, that's how change occurs, I guess, that, that, that people just end up seeing when they have those two options available. They're like, there's, there's no chance I would ever use the legacy one unless I'm absolutely forced to. And there's a much less of an appetite or tolerance for the, the shittier option, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I've been working for the past five years as a contractor and remote worker based in Portugal, and I've never worked for a Portuguese company, right? So I always have issues with my bank not accepting uh, international wire transfers for a variety of reasons, or even when they do accept it, there's crazy, you know, maybe they just charge a couple of euros for the transaction, but then they use a completely outrageous uh, foreign uh, exchange, uh, like an exchange rate that's completely outrageous. And yeah. so it's like an Eden, Eden fee. Uh, I've had situations where I had to actually go to my bank and ask them to fill out this very complicated document so a company could give that document to their bank so they, they, they knew how to route payments to my bank. And that's, you know, for someone that, was born in the internet age where you can, you know, instantly communicate with every single person uh, in the world by just, you know, taking your your cell phone and just sending a text message, which is, you know, ancient technology by now. But even even that worked fairly well, you know, maybe 20 years ago. So for someone that lives in this generation, 
the bank system is so you know outdated and it works with so backwards that it's very hard to you know to accept that and even credit cards which work fairly well for people living in you know con developed countries credit cards work fairly well and i can you know be reasonably sure that i can use my credit card to buy online but it happened to me on numerous occasions that i i go to the us for a conference and for, or for you know something or just to visit and i have a couple of cars and none of my cars work then i have to go out and get cash and to get cash uh, my bank charged me like a 10 dollar fee and then the atm charges me a 5 dollar fee so it it still doesn't work as well as it seems and when it works it seems to be to be very straightforward but there's actually a very complicated payment system and payment payment network with dozens of companies trading within each other well, with it with each other and then banks trading with each other and then balances and central banks kept um for, for all this to happen so if we have a way to transact globally without needing all of this complicated system that obviously all this complexity is charged to the customer or to the merchant right yeah. so we, if we have a way to avoid all of that and mi minimize the fees that merchants and customers pay uh and create a global payment system i think it will be a no-brainer for everyone really and jumping through all these hoops to like draw money make payments when you're traveling receive your salary etc are made even worse now especially for someone like you who's like deep into the bitcoin industry knowing that you know you've got this device in your pocket that could do all of this in like a matter of seconds you know, and you've got to you've got to go through this infrastructure where every institution that touches it has to take the time and take their their profit, their take from from your transaction. Well, I was in uh, in uh, Laos a couple of weeks ago, and I was getting uh, uh, Lao Kip, uh, the currency there, and I was at a Western Union kiosk, and. First of all, the person in front of me was receiving, I think, like a couple hundred bucks from a transfer. And I was there for 15 minutes. He was signing papers. He, they were stamping this and that and giving to him. And then I looked at the fee chart. And to, to send 100 U.S. dollars through Western Union or to, re or to receive it, the fee is 15% excluding foreign exchange fees. 15 percent i mean yeah. it's like and the people using those yeah it's crazy and, and the people using those services in countries like that you know who may not have bank accounts or bank or you know banking infrastructure that can provide those services like they're totally at the mercy of that stuff i know a lot is made of like remittances and bitcoin and stuff and i don't know how much it's actually been used for that at this point but man it certainly seems like a, a market that's ripe for a new way of doing things Absolutely. Yeah. I think with all the trouble that I go to with credit cards and banks, that still doesn't compare with living in a country that actually don't doesn't have a proper banking system or at least one that can interact with every other country's banks. Uh, you know, even if it's troublesome, at least it's possible here in Portugal, whereas for, for a lot of countries, that is not even a possibility. So they have to go through people like Western Union and pay outrageous fees and things like that. And I think you know, Bitcoin remittances are certainly a possibility, but it's still hard for those people to receive the Bitcoin because then in their own country, they will have to transact, right. you know, in their own currency. But I think, you know, there are a lot of people already using Bitcoin for for that, even if they have to go to a local exchange or to, to their, you know, local Bitcoin person. 
to sell to sell their the Bitcoin that they just got from a relative or from friends. Um, even that should be much much cheaper. No no local exchange should be charging you fifteen percent, right? So uh, you have that going on for Bitcoin remittances. But if more and more people start accepting Bitcoin and we start having a circular Bitcoin economy, um, then you can easily you know achieve the goal of unbanking uh, or banking the unbank uh, with, with just having Bitcoin being sent and then they can spend the Bitcoin locally and then the people that they spend the Bitcoin with can pay their suppliers with Bitcoin. So uh, eventually you will reach a world that doesn't need any uh, intermediaries that just do basic things uh, such as sending money back and forth. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And on a kind of a somewhat unrelated point but just the the it made me what you were saying made me think of it is like it's also these countries that have really weak currencies and that are basically you know at the mercy of the countries with the stronger currencies and the banking infrastructure and the policy making power and all that kind of stuff i mean i i some place like laos like it's going to be darn hard for them to break out of, you know, the, the economic situation they're in because, you know, everything is stacked against them. And these days there's lots of discussion about, you know, trade wars and, you know, whether globalization is good or bad. And there's lots of disruptive forces happening, I know. But I just think like, again, if, we, if we're going to use that hindsight lens and like what will people say in 30 years, like trying to have a globalized world economy with hundreds of different currencies, I think is going to seem like, like idiotic. Like, you know, you, how could you have a, a truly globalized world with free trade when every single issuer of currency, every single government can manipulate that currency, you know, in secret or in public? Like, of course you need a standard global currency, to, you know, to, to have smoothness of operation and trade. Kind of like the, the example that's often noted, like 1870 to 1914, you know, when the, the gold standard kind of uh, pervaded throughout the world. Yeah, I think what what Bitcoin gives us that, and and the fact that we have this many currencies is just a byproduct of every country uh, looking at, well, if I can't print my own money, if I can't have this flexibility to completely control uh, where the money goes and uh, what happens to the money and create more money for myself as a government, if you have that opportunity, then of course you're going to take it, right? Yeah. So if every country does that, then we end up in a situation where we have hundreds of currencies and then we have one major currency, which is the world's reserve currency, uh, and every other currency is dependent on that one. So it's a really complicated situation and it's easy to get out of if you look at situation or, or, or of options such as Bitcoin. But it will take time because obviously the government doesn't want to give away the opportunity that they have right now to uh, have this much flexibility with their own money. So we'll see what happens. But it's certainly very backwards that I can instantly send a message to anyone in any country and we can have we can be having this conversation, you know, a video chat from, you know, Portugal to Thailand. So it's crazy that if I want to send money to you. Uh, I can have this conversation with you, but if I want to transfer value to you or transfer money to you, there's really no, if you don't look at Bitcoin, there's really no option that is not extremely convoluted and doesn't ex require me to have all your banking information and maybe even your, your address, your phone number, your email, 
there's really no good way of doing it because you know there needs to be some kind of way to transfer the the money that I use here to the money that you use over there because they're different kinds of money even though they serve exactly the same purpose they end up being different so there needs to be someone that goes ahead and convert the value you know that I have here with the value that you're supposed to receive there so I think if, if we have something like Bitcoin we we can't avoid all of that and especially we can take that power away from from the government which historically you know no fiat currency has survived more than a few dozen decades you know a few decades so um so historically things are not going to end well and all your life savings uh if you keep them in fiat they're probably going to vanish eventually so if we have an op uh, an alternative it's certainly more than welcome <laughs> preach brother preach um but uh, but on that uh, on another related point, just for people that aren't aren't from back to OpenNode for a second, for people that aren't um, that familiar with with Lightning, can you just discuss a little bit about how kind of um, potentially like a revolution in payments and uh, um, and selling things, whether they're you know creative content or physical objects or whatever, the fact that Lightning allows for payments on such a at such a low fee and in such small denominations that this is really kind of opening up you know tremendous amount of possibilities for monetizing pretty you know pretty much anything or at least a lot more than in the past right so so i think there's two ways to look at this so the first one is that yeah lightning does allow you to do very very small payments like sub cents sub us dollar cent payments and settle those instantly over the Lightning Network. Uh, so you can send uh, one Satoshi to anyone that's on the Lightning Network and has the capacity to receive it uh, instantly, and that will settle instantly. So there are no confirmations, there's nothing like that. So that's really cool, and that's probably going to open up a lot of possibilities, uh, ways of doing uh, payments that are not even conceivable right now, just because the technology didn't exist yet. Um, and people talk about things such as streaming payments, and I don't know how much you know sense that uh, makes, or how people will turn that into a thing that's actually usable. But uh, for a simplified example, let's think about Netflix. Instead of paying your monthly subscription, maybe you can just stream payments while you're watching a TV show, and when you close your browser, you close your Netflix player, uh, you stop paying. Right? So. This is a simple example. It's obviously the, the subscription model gives Netflix a lot of uh, other advantages that are not, you know, uh, as apparent or as, you know, they have this monthly income that they are certain that comes in. So in the business side of things, there, there might be some other challenges, but technically it would be possible to do something like that where, where you're streaming payments while you're watching. And maybe for Netflix, it doesn't make sense for them as a business, but I'm sure there will be a lot of other business ideas that thrive with this uh, streaming payments model. But I think another way to look at Lightning is that the base chain right now is very, it's very, very cheap to transact in. And I, and I think this might be an, un, an unpopular opinion, but I think as as more and more havings happen and as more and uh, as less and less Bitcoin is being actually mined, the transaction fees are going to go up because it's very valuable to be transacting in the base layer, right, in the base chain. Um, having a final 
UTXO uh, confirmed and deep into the Bitcoin's blockchain. That's something that if you think about it, you're actually you're having final settlement, a final settlement of value of currency in the world's uh, premier store of value, right? So it shouldn't that shouldn't cost you five cents or ten cents, right? So it's reasonable for me that the base chain um, gets more and more expensive, and I think right now we're, we're we have disproportionate prices for the the amount of value we're getting out of base chain transactions. So how Lightning fixes this is that for every base chain transaction, you now get the possibility of that corresponding to hundreds, if not thousands, or hundreds of thousands. There's no limit really to uh, one UTXO corresponding to hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions on Lightning. So Lightning just uh, spreads um, the cost of that uh, on-chain transaction, which might eventually and will probably eventually get very expensive. But if you can take, if you can do millions of transactions uh, for the cost of a very expensive on-chain transaction, then you can actually do commerce uh, with Bitcoin, even if the, the base chain gets very expensive as it did already in 2017 and as it will probably get uh, in the future. Lightning just gives you the possibility to continue transacting on Bitcoin, uh, even though you're not on the base chain and that has its own its own trade-offs, but it gives you the possibility to start trading with Bitcoin and start doing payments with Bitcoin, which was something that was touted back in the early Bitcoin days. But then the conversation moved more and more into savings, which is right now where Bitcoin makes the, the most sense uh, as a vehicle for, for savings and for investing uh, value. Um, but Lightning gives us a possibility to start working uh, for a world where Bitcoin is actually used for day-to-day -day payments. So I think that is very that's a very exciting future that uh, that we can build using Lightning. And obviously, it's still very early, uh, and Lightning is not ready to onboard onboard millions and millions of people. There are still uh, many technical challenges, and and especially many. Uh, UX or user experience challenges, and everyone's in the space is working very hard uh, to overcome those challenges. And the, the people actually working on the protocol uh, are, you know, constantly improving the Lightning nodes and improving the protocol and coming up with uh, all kinds of proposals um, to improve the protocol itself. And uh, companies like ours, which build on top of this uh, Lightning protocol, are trying very hard to improve the user experience and try to think about ways of making uh, the onboarding process onto the Lightning Network very easy. But we're certainly not at an ideal point to onboard millions of people. But I think now with Lightning, we can see light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas with the base chain alone, everyone you know could envision a future where the base chain was just too expensive for day-to-day -day payments. So Bitcoin was ju is just going to be used for savings and that's already, you know, very, very valuable, but payments were out of the picture. Yeah, it really seems like Lightning is bringing the quote unquote internet of money dynamic to, to Bitcoin, you know, because as you said, you know, a couple of years ago, it was easy maybe to get discouraged and think like, well, this thing is so clogged up. How's it ever going to fulfill the function of all these, you know, things that have been talked about? But I really feel, and I need, I need to, learn more about lightning and become more familiar and experienced with it uh, from a user point of view but it really seems like there's 
a lot of momentum. I mean, it's only obviously less than two years old, but it seems like there's lots of momentum coming. There's people building on top of it and really starting to just starting to explore the possibilities. But I think it's becoming apparent that there is going to be a lot of possibilities uh, with it. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of people working in the space um, from companies working in the actual protocol to companies working in uh, lightning wallets to companies like ours working uh, on just a, a, a lightning payment processor to just regular developers, you know, people just doing side projects and building lightning apps um, to experience new kinds of um, payment models and new kinds of uh, doing micro uh, ways of doing micro transactions online and what advantages that can give you and the, the, the streaming of payments that we've discussed earlier. Um, so there's a lot of work being put into it, but for the regular Bitcoin user, it's still, you know, it's still an entirely different thing that you need to learn because even if you spend, you know, a couple of years learning, okay, I know what an address is, I know what the private key is, uh, I know how to store my Bitcoin. I know how to send it. I know, you know, mo mostly how it works and I can get, you know, my work done and I can send payments and receive payments and I know how it works. Right now, if you look at Lightning, there's a whole another set of problems and things that you need to learn. You need to learn what a node is, what a channel is, how the channel balancing works. And if you have money um, in a channel, it might not be, you know, in the direction that you need it to be. So there's still a lot of things that the regular user can't be expected to learn. Um, so it needs to, it needs to be abstracted away from the user. And there's a lot of work being uh, done in that uh, particular problem to that, to fix that particular problem. Uh, but I think, you know, it's just been, as you said, it's just been not even two years since uh, the mainnet lightning um, began. So, that that is we we done we everyone did a significant progress in those two years and i think if you look at it uh and and give it another five to ten years you will really start seeing you know the bright product of all these uh intellectual um uh, talent working uh, to fix all of these problems and to make payments better and better on bitcoin that will start a show it, it just won't be immediate as people uh maybe some people want it to be but yeah. with time it will come for sure sure I'm, I'm looking forward to the book by andreas and and company about lightning late next year because uh yeah it should you know he's usually pretty good at explaining those those complicated uh, topics but one of the things i i can't well i don't know what the solution is going to be i guess nobody does at this point but the in most jurisdictions spending bitcoin you 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 create a tax event right because technically mm -hmm. you have to pay tax on on capital gains but when we get to such a granular level when you know the lightning network is the predominant way where people are spending and maybe even in a capacity like you described like a streaming capacity micropayments that kind of thing i mean possibly maybe that'll all just be automated so if regulations don't change and they, they stay that way because that's another reason why people don't spend bitcoin right it's not just because they want to keep it as an investment for the next 10 years it's also a big liability, you know, or a big pain in the ass to, to spend it. And so either those regulations change or somehow this is, uh, you know, abstracted away. It's done automatically when, when using the Lightning Network. But is, is that something that you ever consider? Yeah. So I think that is also a twofold uh, thing. So 
on one hand, you have a lot of um, good work being done, lobbying the government and explaining all these things to the government and, and explaining to them how backwards it is that every single Bitcoin transaction creates a taxable event. And obviously, this is in the U.S. Uh, jurisdiction. I'm not sure if it's that way all over the world. But you have um, Coin Center, for example, doing an amazing job um, making these things clear to the government. So eventually, I think they will get it uh, and they will work to change the regulation. But if they don't, I'm sure someone will create a software solution um, that just creates your tax, at least your Bitcoin tax returns for the year. And you can send a, you know, 100 pages uh, tax return to the government and let them deal with that. And I think eventually with all that pain, uh, they will, you know, learn that maybe it's better if we rethink this. It's not really worth it to be right. analyzing millions of pages of one cent, one Satoshi transactions. Uh, but we'll see. I think it's a very fixable problem and it shouldn't be a deal breaker. It's obviously an obstacle for now if you're looking to spend Bitcoin, but you just think about, well, next year I will have to remember this and file all these paperwork. Um, but if you, so if that becomes a problem, uh, you know, a real problem for a lot of people, there will be money in solving that problem and so someone will certainly uh, make money and create a, a software solution that fixes that. So I think eventually right. it, it just hasn't been, it just hasn't been such a big problem uh, for now, but I think eventually if it becomes that, uh, that much of a nuisance, uh, someone will for sure fix it. I like that idea of making it as easy as possible for the user, but creating the most tedious amount of data imaginable for like every year for your, for your tax return, just as a, a bit of a middle finger to, uh, the fine yeah, people I mean, in, if, in that's, if that's what they ask of you, you're just complying with exactly what you've been asked. And I think it, it will just become apparent uh how much backwards how backwards that uh requirement is um because if you're just complying with it and it, that creates an unreasonable amount of paperwork then it's not really your fault uh and so, because you didn't make the rules right so yeah didn't didn't portugal just change their crypto to crypto laws is that portugal or was it spain uh, there was there it was portugal and there were a lot of uh, news outlets reporting on that i'm not i haven't researched that a lot um so i'm uh, this is certainly not legal advice um but i think that news is very very old and there are a lot of con so that refers that referred to vat uh so what in the us would probably be something like the sales tax i'm not exactly sure if those are equivalent but it would be something like that so the the law that was passed just uh stated that you don't have to uh pay vat so value added tax uh, when you're selling Bitcoin, uh, but I'm not exactly sure if it applies to all all kinds of capital gains and all kinds of uh, added value that you're getting, uh, you know, versus the, with the Bitcoin versus Euro trade. I'm not a hundred percent sure that it applies to all kinds of. It, it completely eradicates all kinds of tax implications, but it's certainly a good start, uh, and it, it's good that the government it's at least acknowledging that there's this new kind of transaction that we have to address and they, that it has no legal setting right now and it should have. So we will clarify exactly uh, on the legal grounds of uh, Bitcoin transactions. So I think right. it's a good start, but I'm not sure if it if it was a blanket statement for all kinds of tax. I, I can't speak to that. Okay. Uh, last question before we get into the uh, the rapid fire portion. But how did the uh, the Draper 
investment come around? Were you guys like pitching for that or did they approach you or can you speak to any of that? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm a software engineer at OpenNode, so I'm not very, very involved in the, in the investment process. But I think what happened was that we were pitching a lot of investors and we saw a lot of interest in, in investors uh, being a part of our mission and being uh, invested in our company. Uh, and eventually we, we reached out to them and we set up some meetings and uh, the team met uh, Tim Draper in person. And then we just went back and forth with this team until you know, a, a deal was actually uh, finalized. But I think it was it just happened with a lot of back and forth and a lot of pitching to a lot of different companies. And eventually we uh, ended up pitching Draper and his team uh, and they liked the mission and they decided to go ahead and uh, set up uh, a deal with us. Sweet, sweet. What's up, guys? That's the end of the further discussion episode with Hui. If you want to hear more from him, then the rapid fire episode is available now as well. Later.